All right, it's been a while since our last podcast. Um, This is book 21, which is really the beginning of the end and also the climax of the Odyssey um, because it's the book in which Odysseus finally reveals himself to the suitors. He and Telemachus are in his house. He's disguised as a beggar, you'll recall, and has been abused by the suitors. And Athena has inspired Penelope to set up a contest um, among the suitors to do a physical feat that no one but Odysseus can manage. And so in this book, we'll see not only how Athena favors Odysseus and blesses him with strength and skill and cunning, but that Penelope is a perfect match for him because she is a woman who is equal, his equal in metis, in cunning with skill. Here we go. Owl-eyed Athena now prompted Penelope to set before the suitors Odysseus's bow and the gray iron implements of the contest and of their death. Penelope climbed the steep stairs to her bedroom and picked up a beautiful bronze key with an ivory handle and went with her maids to a remote storeroom where her husband's treasures lay, bronze, gold, and wrought iron. And there lay the curved bow and the quiver still loaded with arrows, gifts which a friend of Odysseus had given him when they met in Lacedaemon long ago. This was Iphitus, Eurytus's son, a godlike man. They had met in Messini, in the house of Ortolochus. Odysseus had come to collect a a debt the Messenians owed him, 300 sheep they had taken from Ithaca in a sea raid, and the shepherds with them. Odysseus had come to get them back, a long journey for the young man, sent by his father and elders. Iphitus had come to search for 12 mares he had lost, along with the mules they were nursing. These mares turned out to be the death of Iphitus when he came to the house of Heracles, Zeus's tough-hearted son, who killed him, guessed though he was, without any regard for the god's wrath or the table they had shared, killed the man and kept the strong-hoofed mares. Heracles, you'll remember, is the Greek pronunciation of the hero that we often know as Hercules. It was while looking for these mares that Iphitus met Odysseus and gave him the bow which old Eurytus had carried and left to his son. Odysseus gave him a sword and spear to mark the beginning of their friendship, but before they had a chance to entertain each other, Zeus's son killed Iphitus, son of Eurytus, a man like the gods. Odysseus did not take the bow with him on his black ship to Troy. It lay at home as a memento of his friend, and Odysseus carried it only on Ithaca. Penelope came to the storeroom and stepped onto the oak threshold, which a carpenter in the old days had planed, leveled, and then fitted with doorposts and polished doors. Lovely in the half-light, she quickly loosened the thong from the hook, drove home the key, and shot back the bolts. The doors bellowed like a bull in a meadow and flew open before her. Stepping through, she climbed onto a high platform that held chests filled with fragrant clothes. She reached up and took the bow, case and all, from its peg, then sat down with the gleaming case on her knees, her eyes welling with tears. Then she opened the case and took out her husband's bow. 
When she had her fill of weeping, she went back to the hall and the lordly suitors, bearing in her hands the curved bow and the quiver loaded with whining arrows. Two maidservants walked beside her, carrying a wicker chest filled with the bronze and iron gear her husband once used for this contest. When the beautiful woman reached the crowded hall, she stood in the doorway, flanked by her maidservants. Then, covering her face with her shining veil, Penelope spoke to the suitors. Hear me, proud suitors. You have used this house for an eternity now, to eat and drink in its master's absence, nor could you offer any excuse except your lust to marry me. Well, your prize is here, and this is the contest. I set before you the great bow of godlike Odysseus. Whoever bends this bow and slips the string on its notch and shoots an arrow through all twelve axes, with him will I go. Leaving behind this house I was married in, this beautiful, prosperous house, which I will remember always, even in my dreams. Penelope said this, and then ordered Eumaeus to set out for the suitors, the bow and the gray iron. All in tears, Eumaeus took them and laid them down, and the cowherd wept too when he saw his master's bow. Antinous scoffed at them both. You stupid yokels, you can't see farther than your own noses. What a pair, disturbing the lady with your bawling. She's sad enough already because she's lost her husband. Either sit here in silence or go outside to weep and leave the bow behind for us suitors. This contest will separate the men from the boys. It won't be easy to string that polished bow. There is no man here such as Odysseus was. I know. I saw him myself and I remember him well, though I was still a child. So Antinous said, hoping in his heart that he would string the bow first and shoot an arrow through the iron. But the only arrow he would touch first would be the one shot into his throat from the hands of Odysseus, the man he himself was dishonoring while inciting his comrades to do the same. And then Telemachus, with a sigh of disgust. Look at me. Zeus must have robbed me with my, of my wits. My dear mother declares, for all her good sense, that she will marry another and abandon this house, and all I do is laugh and think it is funny. Well, come on, you suitors, here's your prize. A woman the likes of whom does not exist in all Achaia or in sacred Pylos, nowhere in Argos or Mycenae, or on Ithaca itself or on the dark mainland. You all know this. Why should I praise my mother? Let's get going. Don't start making excuses to put off stringing the bow. We'll see what happens. And I might give that bow a try myself. If I string it and shoot an arrow through the axe heads, it won't bother me so much that my honored mother is leaving this house and going off with another, because I would at least be left here as someone capable of matching his father's prowess. With that, he took off his scarlet cloak, stood up, and unstrapped his sword from his shoulders. Then he went to work setting up the axe heads, first digging a long trench, true to the line, to hold them in a row, and then tamping the earth around each one. Everyone was amazed that he made such a neat job of it when he had never seen it done before. Then he went and took his stance on the threshold and began to try the bow. Three times he made it quiver as he strained to string it, and three times, he eased off, although in his heart he yearned to draw that bow and shoot an arrow through the iron axe heads. And on his fourth try, he would have succeeded in muscling the string into its notch. 
But Odysseus, who's still in disguise, reined him in, signaling him to stop with an upward nod. So Telemachus said for all to hear, I guess I'm going to be a weakling forever, or else I'm still too young and don't have the strength to defend myself against an enemy. But come on, all of you who are stronger than me, give the bow a try and let's settle this contest. And he set the bow aside, propping it against the polished jointed door and leaning the arrow against the beautiful latch. Then Telemachus sat down on the chair from which he had risen. At this juncture, I want to add a comment about the contest with the axe heads. The fact of the matter is no one really knows what Homer means about shooting an arrow through the 12 axe heads. Presumably, they have holes in them somewhere. It may be the holes that they um, are attached, the, the hole through which a handle is inserted to make the axe useful, in which case it would be a vertical hole that goes through the thick part of the axe, or the axes may have had a loop on them made of iron, which was used to hang them up. We're not really sure, but it's something that the ancients obviously understood and that would have been familiar and understandable to them. Antinous, Eupithes' son, then said, all right, we go in order from left to right, starting from where the wine gets poured. Everyone agreed with Antinous's idea. First up was their soothsayer, Leodes, Enips's son. He always sat in the corner by the wine bowl, and he was the only one who loathed the way the suitors behaved. He now carried the bow and the arrow onto the threshold, took his stance, and tried to bend the bow and string it. But his tender, unworn hands gave out, and he said for all the suitors to hear, Friends, I'm not the man to string this bow. Someone else can take it. I foresee it will rob many a young hero of the breath of life. And that will be just as well, since it is far better to die than live on and fall short of the goal we gather here for with high hopes day after day. You might hope in your heart, you might yearn, to marry Penelope, the wife of Odysseus. But after you've tried this bow and seen what it's like, go woo some other Achaean woman and try to win her with your gifts. And Penelope should just marry the highest bidder, the man who is fated to be her husband. And he set the bow aside, propping it against the polished jointed door and leaning the arrow against the beautiful latch. Then he sat down on the chair from which he had risen, and Antinous heaped contempt upon him. What kind of thing is that to say, Leodes? I'm not going to stand here and listen to this. You think this bow is going to rob some young heroes of life just because you can't string it? The truth is, your mother didn't bear a son strong enough to shoot arrows from bows, but there are others who will string it soon enough. Then Antinous called to Melanthius, the goat herd. Get over here and start a fire, Melanthius, and set by it a bench with a fleece over it, and bring a tub of lard from the pantry so we can grease the bow and warm it up. Then maybe we can finish this contest. He spoke. And Melanthius quickly rekindled the fire and placed by it a bench covered with a fleece, and brought out from the pantry a tub of lard with which the young men limbered up the bow, but they still didn't have the strength to string it. Only Antinous and godlike Eurymachus, the suitors' ringleaders and their strongest, were still left in the contest. Meanwhile, two other men had risen and left the hall, 
the cowherd and swineherd, and Odysseus himself went out too. When the three of them were outside the gates, Odysseus said softly, Cowherd and swineherd, I've been wondering if I should tell you what I'm about to tell you now. Let me ask you this. What would you do if Odysseus suddenly showed up here out of the blue, just like that? Would you side with the suitors or Odysseus? Tell me how you stand. And the cattle herder answered him, Father Zeus, if only this would come true. Let him come back. Let some god guide him. Then you would see what these hands could do. And Eumaeus prayed likewise to all the gods that Odysseus would return. Eumaeus is the name of the swineherd. When Odysseus was sure of both these men, he spoke to them again. I am back, right here in front of you. After 20 hard years, I've returned to my home. I know that only you two of all my slaves truly want me back. I've heard none of the others pray for my return, so this is my promise to you. If a god beats these proud suitors down for me, I will give you each a wife, property, and a house built near mine. You two shall be friends to me and brothers to Telemachus. And look, so you can be sure of who I am, here's a clear sign. That scar from the wound I got from a boar's tusk when I went long ago to Parnassus with the sons of Autolycus. And he pulled his rags aside from the scar, which you may or may not recall is on his thigh. When the two men had examined it carefully, they threw their arms around Odysseus and wept and kept kissing his head and shoulders in welcome. Odysseus kissed their heads and hands and the sun would have gone down on their weeping had not Odysseus stopped them saying, no more weeping and wailing now. Someone might come out of the hall and see us and tell those inside. We'll go back in now, not together, one at a time. I'll go first and then you, and here's what to watch for. None of the suitors will allow the bow and quiver to be given to me. It'll be up to you, Eumaeus, to bring the bow over and place it in my hands. Then tell the women to lock the doors to their hall, and if they hear the sound of men groaning or being struck, tell them not to rush out, but to sit still and do their work in silence. Philetius, I want you to bar the courtyard gate and secure it quickly with a piece of rope. Philetius is the name of the cowherder. With, the, with this, Odysseus entered his great hall and sat down on the chair from which he had risen. Then the two herdsmen entered separately. Eurymachus was turning the bow over and over in his hands, warming it on this side and that by the fire, but even so, he was unable to string it. His pride hurt. Shoulders sagging, he groaned and then swore, Damn it! It's not just myself I'm sorry for, but for all of us, and not for the marriage either. That hurts, but there are plenty of other women, some here in Ithaca, some in other cities. No, it's that we fall so short of Odysseus's godlike strength. We can't even string his bow. We'll be laughed at for generations to come. Antinous, son of Eupythes, answered him, That'll never happen, Eurymachus, and you know it. Now look. Today is a holiday throughout the land, a sacred feast in honor of Apollo, the archer god. This is no time to be bending bows, so just set it aside quietly for now. As for the axes, why don't we leave them just as they are? No one is going to come into Odysseus's hall and steal those axes. 
Now let's have the cupbearer start us off so we can forget about the bow and pour libations. Come morning, we'll have Melanthius bring along the best she-goats in all the herds so we can lay prime thigh pieces on the altar of Apollo, the archer god, and then finish this business with the bow. Antinous's proposal carried the day. The heralds poured water over everyone's hands, and boys filled mixing bowls up to the brim and served out the wine, first pouring a few drops into each cup for libation. When they poured out their libations and drunk as much as they wanted, Odysseus spoke among them, his heart full of cunning. Hear me, suitors of the glorious queen, and I address Eurymachus most of all, and godlike Antinous, since his speech was right on the mark when he said that for now you should stop the contest and leave everything up to the gods. Tomorrow the archer god will give the victory to whomever he chooses, but come, let me have the polished bow. I want to see, here in this hall with you, if my grip is still strong, and if I still have any power left in these gnarled arms of mine, or if my hard traveling has sapped all my strength. They seethed with anger when they heard this, afraid that he would be able to string the polished bow, and Antinous addressed him contemptuously. You don't have an ounce of sense in you, you miserable tramp. Isn't it enough that we let you hang around with us undisturbed with a full share of the feast? You even get to listen to what we say, which no other stranger, much less beggar, can do. It's wine that's screwing you up, as it does anyone who guzzles it down. It was wine that diluted the great centaur, Eurytion, in the hall of Pyrithoas, the Lapith hero. Eurytion got blind drunk, and in his madness did a terrible thing in Pyrithoas's house. The enraged Lapiths sliced off his nose and ears and dragged him outside, and Eurytion went off in a stupor, mutilated and muddled. Men and centaurs have been at odds ever since, Eurytion hurt himself because he got drunk. And you're going to get hurt too, I predict. Hurt badly if you string the bow. No one in all the land will show you any kindness. We'll send you off in a black ship to Echidus, who maims them all. You'll never get out alive, so just be quiet and keep on drinking. Don't challenge men who are younger than you. It was Penelope who answered Antinous. It is not good or just, Antinous, to cheat any of Telemachus's guests who come to this house. Do you think that if this stranger proves strong enough to string Odysseus's bow, he will then lead me to his home and make me his wife? I can't imagine that he harbors this hope, so do not ruin your feast on that account. The very idea is preposterous. Eurymachus responded to this. Daughter of Icarius, wise Penelope, of course it's preposterous that this man would marry you. That's not what we're worried about, but we are embarrassed at what men and women will say. A bunch of weaklings were wooing the wife of a man they couldn't touch. They couldn't even string his polished bow. Then along came a vagrant who strung it easily and shot through the iron. That's what they'll say to our lasting shame. And Penelope, her eyes narrowing. Eurymachus, Men who gobble up the house of a prince cannot expect to have a good reputation anywhere, so there isn't any point in bringing up honor. This stranger is a very well-built man, and he says he is the son of a noble father, so give him the bow and let us see what happens. And here's my promise to all of you. If Apollo gives this man the glory and he strings the bow, I will clothe him in a fine cloak and tunic and give him a javelin to ward off dogs and men. 
and a double-edged sword and sandals for his feet, and I will give him passage to wherever his heart desires. This time, it was Telemachus who answered. As for the bow, mother, no man alive has a stronger claim than I do to give it to whomever I want or to deny it. No, none of the lords on rocky Ithaca, nor on the islands over toward Elis, none of them could force his will upon me, not even if I wanted to give this bow outright, case and arrows and all, as a gift to the stranger. Go to your rooms, mother, and take care of your work, spinning and weaving, and have the maids do theirs. This bow is men's business, and my business especially, since I and the master of this house. Penelope was stunned and turned to go, her son's masterful words pressed to her heart. She went up the stairs to her room with her women and wept for Odysseus, her beloved husband, until gray-eyed Athena cast sleep on her eyelids. Downstairs, the noble swineherd was carrying the curved bow across the hall. The suitors were in an uproar, and one of them called out, Where do you think you're going with that bow, you miserable swineherd? You're out of line. Go back to your pigsties, where your own dogs will wolf you down a nice lonely death if Apollo and the other gods smile upon us. Afraid. The swineherd stopped in his tracks and set the bow down. Men were yelling at him all through the hall, and now Telemachus weighed in. Keep going with the bow. You'll regret it if you try to obey everyone. I may be younger than you, but I'll chase you back into the country with a shower of stones. I'm stronger than you. I wish I were as strong when it came to the suitors. I'd throw more than one out of here in a sorry state. They're all up to no good. This got the suitors laughing hilariously at Telemachus. The tension in the room eased, and the swineherd carried the bow across to Odysseus and put it in his hands. Then he called Eurycleia aside and said, Telemachus says you should lock the doors to the hall, and if the women hear the sound of men groaning or being struck, tell them not to rush out, but to sit still and do their work in silence. Eumaeus' words sank in, and Eurycleia locked the doors to the crowded hall. Meanwhile, Philetius left without a word and barred the gates to the fenced courtyard. Beside the portico, there lay a ship's hawser made of papyrus. Philetius used this to secure the gates, and then he went back in, sat down on the chair from which he had risen, and kept his eyes on Odysseus. He was handling the bow, turning it over and over, and testing its flex to make sure that worms had not eaten the horn in its master's absence. The suitors glanced at each other and started to make sarcastic remarks. Ha! A real connoisseur! An expert in bows! He must have one just like it in a case at home. Or plans to make one just like it, to judge by the way the masterful tramp keeps turning it in his hands. May he have as much success in life as he'll have trying to string that bow. Thus the suitors, while Odysseus, deep in thought, was looking over his bow. And then, effortlessly, like a musician stretching a string over a new peg on his lyre and making the twisted sheep gut fast at either end, Odysseus strung the great bow. Lifting it up, he plucked the string and it sang beautifully under his touch with a note like a swallow's. 
the suitors were aghast. The color drained from their faces, and Zeus thundered loud, showing his portents and cheering the heart of the long-enduring godlike Odysseus. One arrow lay bare on the table. The rest, which the suitors were about to taste, were still in the quiver. Odysseus picked up the arrow from the table and laid it upon the bridge of the bow, and still in his chair drew the bowstring and the notched arrow back. He took aim and let fly, and the bronze-tipped arrow passed clean through the holes of all twelve axe heads from first to last. And he said to Telemachus, Well, Telemachus, the guest in your hall has not disgraced you. I did not miss my target, nor did I take all day in stringing the bow. I still have my strength, and I'm not as the suitors make me out to be in their taunts and jeers. But now it is time to cook these men's supper while it is still light outside, and after that we'll need some entertainment, music, and song, the finishing touches for a perfect banquet. He spoke and lowered his brows. Telemachus, the true son of godlike Odysseus, slung on his sharp sword, seized his spear, and gleaming in bronze, took his place by his father's side.